We're essentially today picking up where we left off last week. So Jesus has died. Three days later, he came back to life and everything changed from that point moving forward. And so Jesus, um, after the resurrection, he spends 40 days with his buddies and then he ascends to heaven and he leaves the world with, with lots of things, but two main things. He leaves the world with the Holy Spirit and he leaves the world with the ministry of the church. It is not a small thing that when Jesus ascends to the Father that that he commissions his people with the ministry of the church. And so um, at Pentecost, which we'll study in a few weeks, the Spirit falls on the people of God and the church starts to grow like crazy. And that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, Our New Testament lesson today comes from Acts chapter 5, if you want to go there, or another plug, vineyardchurch.info has already got it typed out for you. Okay. Acts chapter 5. That's my last plug for that, okay? We're going to start in verse 27. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you, as I do every week, for this room and for these people, for the way your spirit lingers here. And so, God, we ask, as we did last week, that in this Easter season, that what happens in this room would be something that you take great delight in, that we would be... um, that our songs would rise to you and sound like delight in your ears, that our um, work that we do in the scriptures and work that we do in these few minutes would, would rise to you and be delight in your ears. That as we sit before you and worship you, you um, would feel delighted in. We thank you that, um, that the resurrection changed everything for us and that it didn't leave us the same. That you have rescued us in order to do something with us. You, you made us on purpose for purpose. And so, God, over the next few minutes, I pray that you um, reveal some of the ways for us. Give us the courage to see the ways that uh, we quit doing that. We thank you that uh, your spirit is with us and for us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the scene from the passage that we read today, scholars, biblical scholars, they tell us that it took place about two years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So uh, the first five chapters of Acts are sort of a two-year period of time. And so um, in a few weeks, we're going to get to what to Pentecost and what those first few minutes and days and weeks and months looked like. Um, but in our text today, we're two years in, and the church is growing like wildfire. I mean, crazy. It, it, that's absolutely what it did. It grew like a wildfire. The, the church, the early church, um, the first church, it grew like nothing has ever grown in all of human history. Uh, I read a statistic this week that said this. Um, in, in, in 300 years, Christianity grew from 0% of Romans believing in Christ to by 350 AD, 51% of Romans claiming him as their king. 
51%. That is quick. That is really quick. You have to think about it this way. Uh, in, in the first century, there are no books, there are no vehicles, there are no telephones, there is no internet. And in three generations, the majority of, of a, an entire people group are proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives when there were 0% of them doing that before. Uh, about 300 AD, uh, the, uh, Theodius I has declared Christianity as the national religion of the Roman Empire. This is unbelievable. Like, in my house, I can't get 51% of people to think I'm in charge. Like, I'm trying to be the queen over there, and, and I can't do it. This, the early church, it is spreading like wildfire. Uh, Peter and the other disciples, they are preaching, and they're praying, and they're healing diseases and casting out devils all over the place, and people are taking notice. They're absolutely taking notice. Um, not always the people that um, are excited about it are taking notice. And so in Acts chapter 5, we have this moment when the Sadducees, who are religious leaders, we talk about the Pharisees a lot, the Sadducees are, are also religious leaders, they catch wind of this and they go and arrest the apostles and then they put them in jail. So right before the text we read, they've arrested Peter and the apostles. They put them in jail. And then in what reads like a really funny joke in the book of Acts, uh, an angel appears in the jail and the doors open and the church walks right out of the jail in the night. It's awesome. And, and so they walk out in the night and then the angel says to Peter and the apostles, he says, go to the temple of the people who just arrested you and tell them where life can be found. It's a good sentence. Tell them where life to be found can be found. And so they do. Peter and the apostles, they follow the instructions of the angel, the messenger of God, and, and they go and they tell the people in the temple who just arrested them about Jesus. And to no one's surprise at all, they get arrested again a second time. It's a terrible plan that the angel has. How dare he? Um, and so they get arrested again. And so when our text picks up today, a council has been assembled uh, for Peter and the other apostles to stand before and answer for their crimes. And so it's here in this council that they're told to stop it or die, essentially. Stop doing this or we will kill you. And Peter, he replies, you know, he's my favorite because he doesn't think things through. Though this is beautiful and eloquent, Peter, he replies with this brave, brave thing, and he looks at the council and he says, we can't help it. We can't help it. We have to do what we're doing. Because we don't listen to you. We listen to Jesus, the King, and the Spirit of the one that you killed on a tree lives inside us and empowers us with the greatest story, the hope of the whole world. And so we can't help it. And that sentence in all of the verses that we read, which I put in Lindsay English, it, it has messed with me. <laughs> It's messed with me so much for a while now. We can't help it. We have to do this. Nothing could hold Peter and the apostles back. Uh, when I think about times in my life that I felt like that, times in my life when nothing could hold me back, um, I, that's what I was trying to do this week. Like, what are the times that, that no matter what happened, uh, I, I, nothing could hold me back from whatever it was I was trying to do? And I thought of two. The first one uh, was when I married Daniel. I remember waking up the morning of my wedding and thinking that nothing, nothing mattered to me other than looking that man in the eyes and promising him forever. That 
nothing could have stopped me from that. Um, what's interesting to me is a couple of weeks before, maybe even days before, my mom would remember, my mom and I were in a Hobby Lobby parking lot uh, arguing. I'm pretty sure I was yelling about ribbon color. What shade of pink we were going to purchase and we are at each other because the most important thing to me in that moment is that my shade of pink and her shade of pink were different and I was the bride and she was paying for it, so she chose. Uh, so... <laughs> And that was like the most important thing. But then I wake up the day of my wedding and, and, and the shade of pink, I didn't think about it a single time. I didn't give any cares about ribbon color. Uh, the worst shade of pink could not have stopped me from marrying Daniel. Nothing could have stopped me from that. Uh, I, I've talked plenty on here about uh, when my twins were born, Camel and Graham, they were born nine weeks early and... Um, and so when I had, I had a C-section, so they go straight from the operating room to the NICU because they're tiny and, and trying to learn how to breathe. And, and, and so I, I, don't, I barely get to wave at them on their way out. And so the nurses, what they told me is that I could go visit my boys as soon as I could feel my feet. Like as soon as the epidural wore off and I could feel my feet, I could go see them, which is wise that you would not leave one wing of the hospital to go to another wing of the hospital until all of your body is working. Like that makes sense to me. The problem was... I didn't like that role. And so uh, at some point, mom, my mom and Daniel went to visit them and take pictures to bring me pictures back, which was really nice and also the worst because it just, like, it made me so jealous. And, and I was thinking this week, like, my first maternal instinct that I remember is the rage that welled up inside me that was like, you try to stop me from seeing those kids. So I did what you would have done in the same situation, and I lied. It's a holy lie. <laughs> I lied and said I could feel my feet long before I could feel my feet. I had Daniel prop me up like, have you ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> so I weekended at Bernie's all the way down to see those boys because I had to. I had to. I, I couldn't help it. I could not not see my kids. I could not not marry Daniel. Nothing could have stopped me from these things. Last week, uh, in the Easter sermon, we read um, from Moltmann, and, and we said, this is what he says. I, I loved it, so it's worth repeating. He says, the resurrection is not our opium. It is not a balm to soothe us until Jesus returns. It is the energy that points not to another world, but to the renewal of this world. And we talked about how uh, we have been rescued into the family of God to live like Easter people, to live like resurrection people, to live as if the resurrection actually happened. That we are supposed to live our lives as, Jesus, as if Drew, Jesus is truly alive and a new creation has truly begun and as if we actually get to be part of it. That is what Peter and the apostles are doing here. Nothing could stop them because they were living as if Jesus truly walked out of death. They were spreading hope and rescue and the good news of Jesus because they could not help themselves. Nothing could stop them. How about you? That was my next question. How about me? Is that how we live? I told you the sentence had been really disruptive for me this week. A high priest and an assembled council look Peter in the eye and say, stop it or we will kill you. And he says, I can't stop. I have to do this. It is the hope of the world. 
Uh, when I read uh, parts of the Bible, like the narrative parts of the Bible, the story parts of the Bible, I, I, I do this practice that um, Ignatius calls in his spiritual practices, imaginative reading or imaginative prayer. And essentially, it's that when we read the stories of the scriptures, we would do this practice where we would insert ourselves into the story. We would put ourselves uh, into the story. I always pick a really good role for myself. Um, and so, so when I do that, uh, it, it sounds weird, but it's actually super, super helpful. And so um, when, when I was doing that this week, reading the story of Peter, and I, and I put myself in the place of Peter, I would love to tell you that my answer before that council every single time would be, I have to do this. I can't help it. I have to be an Easter person. I have to live as if all of this happened. I have to live as if God has really invited me to join him in putting things back together. But, but when I'm honest with myself, my answer more often than it is that is this. I'm terrified. I'm so scared. When I put myself in Peter's role in the story, I am so scared. If I'm in the story and I'm Peter, I don't want to die. I I don't want to die. I could think of a thousand justifying reasons why I should make my faith more private in that moment. And if I bring this story into 2019, my fear is worse than, like a, than, a, than a fear of dying because I, I'm not particularly afraid of dying for the gospel. I don't want to belittle what's happening, what happened in Sri Lanka, what's happened all over America and churches. And, um, uh, but the truth is, in, in Alcoa, Tennessee, in 2019, the risk of dying for the gospel is, is pretty low right now. It's not the same that it is in China or in places in Africa, all over the world. Josh, Josh walks with people who, who this is, is, is what they're afraid of. That, that isn't me. So when I keep, I, so I just spend some time and I'm like, what is it that I'm so afraid of? If I'm not afraid of dying, then why don't I always live this way? And, and I'll be honest, I hated the answer I came up with. I hated what I discovered about myself. I hope it's helpful to you. Um, I'm not afraid of, of living this out day in and day out uh, because I'm afraid of dying. Um, I am afraid to follow what Jesus has asked me to do for a lot of other reasons. Here's what they are. I'm afraid I won't be liked. People all over the world are afraid of death. I'm afraid I won't be liked. I'm afraid I won't be respected. I'm afraid that I will look foolish I'm afraid of being classified as like one of those Christians. And there's like so many groups of those Christians, right? Uh, I don't want to be those. I'm afraid that people will think that I'm small-minded. I'm afraid that people will think I'm judgmental. I'm afraid that people will think I'm a bigot. I'm afraid that I will step on someone's toes and ruffle someone's feathers and then not know what to do about it. I'm afraid of what it will cost me financially and emotionally and relationally and physically. And even deeper than that, I'm afraid that maybe God isn't enough. That maybe isn't worth all of that risk. And then the worst fear of all, what I'm afraid of more than anything else, is that I'm the one who isn't enough. That Jesus has asked his followers to follow him in these incredible ways, and somehow I slid through the cracks. And I'm not enough. I think the reason that we don't always do what God has asked us to do is because we are just so afraid. Where's, aren't you? You don't, you don't have to nod. You could. It would make me feel less lonely. 
aren't you? Like, can we be self-aware enough to see how afraid we are in this world? Uh, I read an article this week by a vineyard pastor buddy of mine named Jay Pathak, and, and he said this. It's great. He said, if you ask normal people on the street what the main desire of a godly person is, I think that most would say they are trying to be good or holy or morally perfect. Those are not bad goals, but I'm not sure that these are the goals that truly help us walk in the ways of Jesus. I am increasingly convinced that courage is one of the most important virtues to cultivate and to see actual transformation in your life. Without courage, none of the other virtues that you seek are found. It's true, right? Particularly in the South, we, we practice our faith. We practice life as if we believe following Jesus is mostly about being good, right? We do this. We, we practice following Jesus as if it's mostly about being good, that the task of being Easter people is about being good. But the story of the scriptures is a very different story. The story of the scriptures is not predominantly a book about being good. It is stories of being brave, Good is good, but it's being brave. Bravery as the gateway for goodness. These are stories of being brave. Courage is everywhere in the scriptures. It's, it's all over them. The people of God from beginning to the end, they do these wild and terrifying things in the, in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Spirit of God. Courage is one of the stories of the scriptures. But, but I think we're prone to believe that maybe biblical courage is just one of those things for sort of way back when. Like one of those things, an idea for that time, for Bible times or early church times. You know, I said that we're going to look at Acts in the early church because I think we can get a lot out of it. I think this is one of the things that we can gain from looking at the early church. The followers, four followers of Jesus, biblical courage is not an idea from way back in the first century. Biblical courage is an always idea. It's an always idea. It's what, it's what came with the ministry of the church from Jesus. And so I think it's worth talking, us talking about how bizarre it is for the people of God, for being Easter people, to be so driven by our fear. That's what struck out to me this week. Like, the scriptures are the stories of courage. I, 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 I believe what, what I read from Jay that I think courage, brave is better than good. Bravery is the, the, the road to goodness. But, uh, but at the same time, there's this crazy, I don't know, contrast. This crazy contrast of the people of God being so driven by fear. My counselor, uh, she says that courage isn't an absence of fear. It's being afraid and doing it anyway. Have you heard that before? It, we talked about this last week, uh, the girl that was talking about fear and creativity, and she said, uh, fear doesn't get to drive the car anymore. Fear can ride in the car, but it has to ride in the back seat, and it doesn't get to touch the radio. I want a t-shirt of that. Um, so that, that's it. That's, it's essentially this. It's not letting fear drive our car. That's what courage is. It's, it's putting fear in the back seat, not letting it touch the radio. Or this one, I, this is my favorite definition I've ever heard of courage. It comes from an article written in the early 1990s by a man named Ambrose Redmoon. Anyone pregnant? That's a good one. <laughs> Ambrose Redmoon. Here's the, the article is called No Peaceful Warriors. He says this. It's so good. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the judgment that something else is more important than fear. This is the stories of the scriptures, right? 
the stories that maybe you grew up on. If, if you grew up in church, I, I loved the Sunday school stories. We don't spend nearly enough time on them now. David and Goliath, and, and I liked Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego when they go in that fire and they are just dare, dare the people to burn them up. Uh, Esther, Jonah, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Peter, and James, and John, and Paul, and Lydia, and the Marys that we talked about last week. Their stories, these are not stories absent of fear. These are stories of men and women who, because they had been seized by the power of a great affection, they found something else far more important than fear. It's not that they weren't afraid. It's that they found something more important, something louder and far more compelling than whatever it was that they were afraid of. And so Peter stands before a council and he says, I cannot stop preaching the good news. I cannot stop the good news of Jesus. Not because Peter wasn't afraid, but because hope and life and freedom were far more important to him than fear was. Godly courage, it's a thing. It's a thing that's available to us. I, I feel like it's a thing that the Holy Spirit wants to remind us of, to call out in us today as individuals, but also as a church. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have a job to do. And we live in a world where everything around us is saying, you aren't enough for this. You are too busted for this. You are too broken for this. You are too afraid for this. You absolutely cannot pull this off. But I'm here to tell you that, that we were not made to sit comfortably in the voice of fear. We have to find a way to put it in the back seat. Our job as sons and daughters of the king is to believe what is inside of us, to believe the power of the spirit of God that lives inside of us. We said last week that the, the power of the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same spirit that lives in us. The exact same one. We have to learn to listen to the voice, the story, and the songs that are far more important than fear. Francis Chan says it like this. He says, we are children of the most powerful being in all of existence. It just looks weird when we're scared. <laughs> I like it. It just looks weird when we're scared. When God's children are weak and scared, it doesn't make any sense. It looks really strange. We were meant to walk around like children of God, marked by the power and the confidence of this belief that our God will come through. That's the song of the scriptures. My God will come through for this, for me, for this world. And so we follow him, cultivating courage and believing God will do what he says he will do. The God of the whole universe, he goes with us and he goes before us in all that we do. And so what that means is that our future isn't something that an all-knowing God just knows about. It means that our future is a place where he is. That's a big distinction. Your future isn't just a place that God knows about. It's a place he already is. God going before us means he doesn't just know where we're going. He is where we're going. We go with him toward him. Not alone. With him. Toward him. With him. Hebrews 13.5 gives us this promise from God. He says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a good verse. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, my boss, Aaron. 
if you're a pastor, is it a boss? My pastor friend, Aaron, who is at the Maryville Vineyard, he took a, in Bible college, he, uh, he had a professor that broke down this verse in the original language. And, and so if you break it down the original language, the passage literally translate this way. It says it like this. It's stuck with me forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, no, never, not ever. That's the translation. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, no, never, not ever. You were created on purpose for purpose, created by God and commissioned to join him in the renewing of this world. And we don't go alone because he will never leave us. No, no, never, not ever. The band can come on up. So uh, Graham is on a baseball team, my son. Uh, He's on a baseball team and they are very good. Very good. Um, em- embarrassingly good. Have you ever played on a Little League team or seen a Little League team that was a little bit too good? That's Graham's team. Um, it, it, they're very, very good. On a different team, Graham would probably be very good. He would probably be a really good player. But on this team, um, because they are all so good, he is the last one in the batting lineup. I don't know tons about baseball, but that is not the first place to be. <laughs> last in the batting lineup. Uh, He sends the bench regularly, and he plays right field most of the time, sometimes left, every once in a while center. He he sometimes forgets to pay attention, and one day he choked on sunflower seeds while at bat, so (laughs) he's grim. He is so himself on this field, and I'm so proud of him. I love watching him play baseball. I love it. I love watching him in the dugout when he sits at the bench and he's hiding the sunflower seeds that I have banned him from forever. I am so proud. Like, you should come see him. He's great. I I love watching him. I'm so proud of him. But the truth is, on the Cubs, he is not the best player or even one of the best players, and he's actually really replaceable. Like, they could put any kid there, and and he could, you know, he's not going to be Graham because Graham's perfect and wonderful and mine. But, like, he's, as a player, he's he's replaceable. And and so uh, he just is. But last night, my phone dings, and and I look down at it, and I have this text from his coach. It says this. And, by the way, his coach is, like, the least gushy-mushy person you've ever met in your life. Uh, I don't, I'm not 100% what good old boy means, but I think he's one of those. So... He sends this text. It just says this. It says, I'm so glad you guys are on our team. That was his text. Graham, who's replaceable. I'm so glad you guys are on our team. He could have picked anyone, but he picked Graham. Season after season, year after year, we're four years into this. He keeps picking Graham year after year after year. Friends, we are Easter people and we have a job to do. It is what you were made for. It is what you were made for. And and you might feel like you're not enough. And I have good news for you this Sunday. You aren't. You are not enough. You, me either. You aren't good enough. You aren't smart enough. You aren't rich enough. You aren't powerful enough. You have done so many things in your life that should 100% completely disqualify you from what God has asked you to do. You are entirely inadequate for this job. Happy Sunday. <laughs> and yet... <laughs> And yet, the one who made you calls you his own. You have been chosen and rescued and set into the family of the Most High King. He has spoken purpose and hope and life and brave into your life. 
He put the same spirit in you that raised Jesus from the dead. He has covered you in all of your shortcomings with his favor and with his power and with his blessing. And he has asked you to join him in the renewal of all things. So your job is to put fear in the back seat and follow him wherever he leads, favored by God and equipped with the good, good news. Amen. I am in myself last week. I don't know if I need a crowd. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, we're going to take a few minutes. We do this every week. We call it Selah. It's just a pause. We're just going to take a breath. Sit here. I'm going to pray. God, we ask your spirit to be near in these moments. We give us the courage to look at um, what we're afraid of. We expose it. We give us the courage to look inside our own hearts and, and see what are the things that keep us from believing that you might actually want to do something with us. God, I pray that... Um, that you make us a courageous church, that you make us courageous as people, but you make us courageous as a group. Would we be the kind of people that um, don't pretend fear doesn't exist, but the kind of people who have found something far more important than it. I pray that you will remind us that the song you sing over us is that you have chosen us that year after year and season after season, through the good and through the bad and through the hard and through the dark, you have called us your own. You have instilled us with purpose and you have put the same spirit in us that raised Jesus from the dead. May we pray, amen.